Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hi, and welcome to the season one finale of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Liz Lenevy, and I am joined today by Erica Slater, Amy Gunn, and then joining us remotely, because we are still in the time of COVID, is Mary Simon and Elizabeth McNulty. So a few housekeeping matters. As I alluded to, this is going to be the final episode of our inaugural season. Our plan is to just take a couple of weeks off, reflect on the topics we've already discussed, and then come back not too long, but with some fresh new episodes. And hopefully, maybe some of those episodes can be some of the suggestions we've gotten from listeners, which leads me to my housekeeping point number two. Thank you so much to everyone who has listened, who has rated and reviewed, interacted with us. I think we can all agree that this has been more successful than maybe we initially gave ourselves credit for. I think we've all had a bigger response than we anticipated, and I'm so excited and thrilled, and and this has been so much fun, and I'm really glad we can have these conversations and share them with other female attorneys, with other people in any industry. So this has been great, and thank you so much to everyone. Regarding today's episode, we are going to be talking about a topic that is being discussed in lots of different settings right now, given the climate that we're in, and that is on racial bias, unconscious bias, diversity and inclusion. And, you know, in light of the Black Lives Matter protests happening across the country, you know, many people and companies and industries in general are having these discussions about race and racism that are long overdue. And that includes lawyers and law firms like ours. And so, Erica, maybe you can give some insight into how we have decided to approach this topic. Yeah, I think our normal format is, you know, you hear us kind of off the cuff sharing war stories and things like that. This topic, we all have talked and planned a lot to discuss with you. We have examined our own position within not only our law firm, but in the greater legal profession within our small legal community in St. Louis, Missouri, and also how this topic fits into the larger legal community across the country. The great opportunity that we have is that our country is in the middle of a new and renewed reckoning with racial bias and confronting some really difficult issues. And we wanted to take the opportunity to discuss those issues, however difficult it may be for us. So we do struggle through this topic. It's a difficult topic to talk about. You may hear that in our voices, and and it should be. It's a very important thing for our profession to confront. It's an important thing for us as women to confront. And we want to open that door to the discussion amongst ourselves and also really seek out the resources that we need to educate ourselves because they are out there. And that is what is different than any other time in the past when our country has grappled with racial disparity and racial bias, especially in professional fields, is that the resources are there. You don't have to look to people of color and ask them to educate you. They've been doing that for years. And so we have all studied up a little bit, prepared quite a bit for this episode, and we hope that you will find something helpful from this episode. And as Erica said, it's important for us to have this discussion amongst ourselves. Some of you may not know us or have seen pictures of us, but none of us are black. 
not a single one of us has experienced life as a black woman in this profession or in this country. I am, and, and, I, and I've spoken about this before, I'm mixed race. My mom is Korean, and so I, you know, just like being a woman, being an Asian American woman has certainly affected certain aspects of my career and certain interactions I've had. And just like the experience of walking into a room or walking into a courtroom and being the only woman, it is certainly an added layer when you are the only outwardly person of, of color in the room. And I don't know if I've told this story before, but I remember walking into a particularly busy courtroom. There were at, at least 50 to 60 other attorneys in that room, and I was one of four women, and I was the only not white person in that room. And that is a jarring experience, but it's something that people of color and attorneys of color experience regularly. But even though I've, I've had that experience, I do recognize that my skin color provides me a lot of privilege in this job. And with that privilege comes a lot of ignorance. So what we want to do with today's episode is speak openly and honestly about how our privilege benefits us and how we have reflected on our unconscious or implicit bias. And, and so I'll open up this topic with something that I have learned or at least it's been made aware to me and I have learned that I need to be more conscious of it. A couple months ago, I was having a coffee with a law student. We met at an event, and she emailed me and asked if, if we could meet, and, and she could pick my brain about career options and things like that. And of course, I agreed. I love meeting with law students. And when we met, she's, she's a lovely young woman, and she was giving me a list of questions, and I thought I was knocking it out of the park. But then she asked me a question that, I mean, I must have looked like a deer in headlights. This young woman is black, and at the time she had braids in her hair, and she asked me point blank, do you think I'm not going to get a job because of my hair? Do you think employers are going to overlook me, or either for hiring or for promotion because of the way my hair looks? My parents have told me one thing, but I believe another, and I want to know your opinion. And it took me about 15 seconds to formulate the response of, I cannot answer that question for you. I really wish I could, but I can't because no one has ever talked to me about unprofessional hair because it's not something I've ever had to deal with. And that is something that I think is often overlooked. And even in Going back to our podcast, we did a podcast on on professional attire in the courtroom, and we never talked about what hairstyle is and is not appropriate for women that have textures of hair outside of what we have. And again, it's because we don't have to think about it. We've never had to think about it. And it takes someone living that experience to actually bring it to our attention. I read an article this morning, on, I think it was on HuffPo, um, about how women, black women with natural hair are hired less than black women with relaxed hair and white women with any hair texture. And, and so it is clearly still a problem, even when you think you are woke or you think that you are being as neutral and unbiased as possible. 
we still have in the professional world, and that includes the legal community, a bias against black women and their hair. I was having dinner with a couple of friends and friends of friends. And at this particular dinner, I was the only not black woman. And the topic came up of, you know, what do you do if you have a bad hair day? And I said, well, if I have a bad hair day, I just tie it up in a bun and I go. And both of the black women at the table said, no, 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 no. For them, at least, you don't do that in a professional setting because if you show up with bad hair, unprofessional hair, you could get reprimanded. You could get in trouble at your job because of the hairstyle you have. And that is discrimination, that is racist, and that is something that unless you have black people, in particular black women, in your leadership, in your hiring, helping you develop your policies, you're not going to think about it. And so that has been something that I've noticed. Mary, I'd like to pass the mic to you and maybe talk about what experiences you've had or things that you've seen that show the racial discrimination and bias within our practice. First and foremost, I just want to echo the seriousness of the sentiment and the tone of this episode and how every single person in this room right now knows that we just need to do better. And I've got to say before I share any stories that I'm white and I'm privileged in every sense of the word. I think that in part, in part, white privilege to me means that I've never had a defining moment ever in my entire life where I've been treated differently, unfairly, or, or have been disliked because of my race. I've never been the only person of my race in any school class, in a work office, just ever. And no one's ever questioned me or my ability based on my skin tone. That's just tip of the iceberg of my privilege and how I've seen it play out. I want to have this conversation and be better about calling out racism when I see it. And even doing my own reflection in light of Black Lives Matter, thinking about instances where I have seen it in my practice where I should have called it out and I didn't. And I think that it's important not only to tell the stories now, but use that as experience that I know I have and I know now moving forward, I do need to act differently than keeping my mouth shut because that time is over. I have had experiences with clients of color and black clients who've experienced racism during the course of litigation. And I want to bring to light one particular time that stands out to me. I represented a black single mother. She's just so awesome, such an incredible person and mother. During her deposition, she was asked a series of questions about what good moms do. Don't good moms keep baby books? Don't good moms you know, this whole line of questioning about good moms. And I obviously stopped and we took a break and I talked to my client and she said, I just feel like he's, he's just trying to show that I'm some ignorant mom who doesn't care about my kids. And I just looked at her and went, that's exactly right. That's exactly what he's doing. And that's why he's asking those questions. And I talked to her a little bit more and we got through the rest of the deposition, but you know, my God, I just, what I wouldn't give to just be back in the room and just call it for what it is. And it was a whole line of racist questions. I've never seen that happen with a white client. Another point in the same case, uh, we received a set of discovery, written discovery requests, which is basically just an exchange of information between both parties. And you have a chance to ask each other questions. And 
the interrogatory question that I got for my black single mother client was, how many children does she have? And please list the names and addresses of the fathers. And I thought about whether or not I should even call her and tell her that they asked that. And I did. And what we decided to do was write an answer that reflected the ignorance and harassment that the question was charged with. And we were just going to read it to the jury at trial if it came to that point. And I just think about those moments and how I can improve as an advocate and an ally in those situations. Because number one, again, that's nothing I've personally ever experienced, but I can, I can watch my clients experience that. And I'm in a position where my client obviously is always looking to me for what the right answer is. But in a situation like that, you know, you're not just the advocate too. You're also a white lawyer representing a person of color and you need to open your mouth and you need to say something and you need to do something about it. Another thing that was highlighted in that same case that I'm talking about, which I know everyone in this room has has seen play out in their cases, is that when you have a client who is a person of color and a parent and the case involves an injury to a child, the first place that the healthcare providers or law enforcement is looking is at mom or dad as a cause of their injury. And I also think that's important to point out a more systemic perspective on racism and how it's embedded in every aspect of our society and the medical field is no exception. So Mary, as you were speaking, it struck me, the gentleman that you've referred to, is he a racist or is he hoping the jurors are? Because I have tried cases in counties with minority plaintiffs and I have lost them. And there's lots of reasons why you lose a case and I am certainly not subscribing those losses solely to the minority status of my clients, but I cannot believe it didn't have an effect. And I feel like I have to understand it better, which is another reason why I'm so pleased that we're looking into this and speaking about this. And I, I there's no way we're going to have answers, but if we can embrace why some of these things are happening, not only initially to our clients, but then when they're re-victimized throughout the course of the litigation. I am not above shaming. I don't know what is being racist. I think it's recognizing the color of someone else's skin and acting on that in some way, big or small, subtle or overt. I think that's what it means to be racist. I can't say that I'm 100% comfortable calling someone a racist. I can do it in my head all damn day. (laughs) But whether I'm going to be able to do it, I'm not sure if that's my nature. But I think finding out more about this, and the more I see it, the more frustrated I get. And you say we represent these clients and it's not happening to us. Yeah, ladies, it is. These are our clients. We are bound to advocate for them in the courtroom, outside the courtroom, they're our responsibility. And I don't think it's beyond our duty or beyond our responsibility to protect them in any way we can from this type of behavior. So it just struck me as you were telling that story, Mary, that, you know, do these folks do it because they're racist? 
I think it's more likely they just hope the jurors are and that they can gain an advantage by pointing out that as if they couldn't see, but but pointing out not only the color of someone's skin, but all of those stereotypes that go along with it. Because we all know that in order to win a case as a plaintiff, the jury not only has to like your client, but dislike the defendant. And so if the other side can get the jury not to like your client for whatever reason, valid or not, they're one step closer to winning the case. Amy, in the cases that you've tried where you have represented minority clients, have you vordired on that and how have you done that? No, but that's another action item that I have on my list from really putting more thought into this as this entire group has over the last couple of weeks as we prepare for this episode. I tried a case with John Simon a couple of years ago. We had a minority client. She was Middle Eastern. And he did voir dire on it a bit, almost in a way to say, look, y'all, we just don't think that you're going to hold this against my client. I mean, that's crazy, right? You wouldn't do that. Kind of taking the, it would be shameful for you to do that. And that felt effective at the time. Now, again, we lost the case. Lots of reasons why that can happen. But I believe I need to work and to start being comfortable and confident in a voir dire that is basically like, okay, who here is a racist? Because I really want to know. And figure out a way to do that in a way that's not going to get me thrown out of court. <laughs> and alienate the panel. And in alienate the, the panel. Of course, we don't have any trials right now from COVID. But I think that the movement now that's been going on will make that discussion easier. I agree with you that there's no right, there's no correct or fun answer to the question you're posing. I think it would be great to have more information about the outcomes for clients in certain jurisdictions who are persons of color. And I just know that that if anything, I learned from that case, and I'm glad I learned it early in my career, that I do need to open my mouth and I need to say something I need to say something at the time. I need to say something as soon as I see the look on my client's face that they're uncomfortable. And I just need to call it out for what it is. Erica, have you ever had a situation similar to what I was talking about where you knew that's the angle that opposing counsel was taking on your case was you know, embedded in racism? Yeah, I really have. Um, and again, the most common examples continually come from our medical malpractice cases, especially those on behalf of a family member who passed away from the medical error or when we're representing a child in medical malpractice cases. We all have shared stories again and again of you know, when security is called on a black mother who is questioning a doctor about the care that her child is receiving. On the flip side, I had an experience about maybe two and a half years ago. It was also a medical malpractice case. It involved my client's mother, who was elderly, and the case involved a medication error. And so the three daughters who were black were seeking out counsel and interviewing firms. And I was having a conversation with two of them on the phone. And they hadn't met me in person. They were excellent researchers. They did their research about the firm. And our conversation was meant to lead to an in-person meeting with our attorney team. It was a great conversation, got along really well. And at the end of the conversation, our client said, now I looked at your website and you don't have any black attorneys. And then she was silent. 
And as you can imagine, that question caught me off guard, but it was so fair. It was such a fair question coming from her. And it should have made me uncomfortable, and it did. And she also deserved a very honest answer and not an answer that was trying to make excuses or cover that up. And her having to ask that question, I interpreted as wondering whether our firm was going to be a place where they would be treated fairly and the makeup of our firm would be a good relationship for them to embark on without having any black attorneys as part of their team. And it was a great question to ask because it's not something that we weren't aware of, but it also started some really good conversations within our firm with the leadership in our firm as well. And it's, it's something that we pay attention to and we need to do better on as well. And it was just so interesting to be in that situation and say, you are absolutely right. And, you know, let's talk about that. Elizabeth, I know you have been practicing the least out of all of us, but in the experience that you have, can you speak to what you have witnessed? Yeah, so this is certainly something that I was very ignorant of before I started practicing and working as a lawyer. But in my first year alone, I worked on a handful of cases, all involving black children being turned away by hospitals and in emergency departments. In one of the cases specifically, my client and her family weren't being taken seriously by uh, medical providers in the ER. She presented three separate times, and her parents each time were just begging the doctors to admit her and take them seriously. And she was thankfully finally admitted, but this delay in diagnosing her and getting her the treatment that she needed changed the course of her life forever. left her with permanent injuries and all, frankly, because of the color of her skin. And unfortunately, this isn't a unique story. Lots and lots of people experience this, these failings in our healthcare system every day. Whether it be due to implicit or explicit bias, it's far more difficult for Black people to get the medical care that they need and deserve just because they're not taken seriously and just are simply overlooked. And a few weeks ago, I had the fun experience of actually going to the emergency room. And because of my privilege as a white woman, never did I ever have to consider that I wouldn't be taken seriously, that I wouldn't be taken care of, and that the doctors wouldn't do everything in their power to figure out what was going on. People ask when they hear that you do med mal, you know, how can you avoid these kind of things? And I tell people that you have to be your biggest advocate for your own care. But I think that for black people and people of color, that's just simply not enough. And I don't know what the solution is, but I think that as professionals and as people, we have to be better and we have to challenge our own implicit biases. And we can't control the assumptions and the snap judgments that we make, but we certainly can control acting on them. That's kind of something that I've certainly been working on in this time, and it's something that we have to keep working on. So we've talked a lot about how racism affects our clients and can affect how opposing counsel may treat them or even how our firm is made up or interacts with others, which is certainly 
all things we should analyze. But something that we have not spoken about yet is racism and implicit bias within the bench, meaning the judges and the actual courts themselves. And for anyone who practices in Missouri, I'm sure most of us have seen Judge Draper from the Missouri Supreme Court speak to this issue. And Missouri recently I think within this past year, has added to our continuing legal education a requirement for at least one hour of annual training on diversity and inclusion. And when Judge Draper, who's very passionate on this topic, speaks about this, he often references the statistics that show that black judges, in particular black female judges, are consistently rated more harshly than their white and in particular, white male counterpart. And it sort of reminds me of the Sotomayor congressional hearing when she was being vetted for the Supreme Court and some of the questions she got about whether or not she could be fair on racial issues. And it's this idea that if you are outside of quote unquote the norm, meaning you know white male, probably straight and cisgender, whatever other norm we can put on that, that you are somehow naturally more biased or you are incapable of being a fair arbiter because I can't think of any time where a white male judge was asked if he could be fair on, on race issues. And, and so, Amy, I want to pitch this question to you of, of what have you seen and what has been your experience with, with racism and, and bias on the bench? I tried a case a number of years ago, and it was me and Anne Brocklin on our side, and a couple of white gentlemen on the other side representing the defendant with an African-American female judge. And as is often the case in trial, as testimony is ongoing, there are objections that can be posed while a witness is testifying. And oftentimes, based on the objection and how much speaking to the court will need to be done, you wanna do that outside the hearing of the jury, so you ask for a sidebar. But the way sidebar works is you go up to the bench, the, the judge kind of turns toward the lawyers, and you do kind of have to get a little closer together in order to hear each other, because you're also usually very close to the jury. Other lawyer and I are leaning toward the judge. The, the judge is kind of leaning toward us with the bench between us. And as my opposing counsel began arguing his point, he poked the judge's arm. And I saw it. I stepped back away from it. That was my physical reaction was, oh my goodness. That was so inappropriate whether it were men, women, white, I, I just, it was so inappropriate. And the judge didn't really skip a beat from what I could tell. And I was, I didn't even know what to do. I, I guess I pulled myself together and she ruled and we moved on. But I will never forget that. I forget lots of things, ladies, and I will never forget that. And I spoke to the judge a couple years after. But because it was something that was so impactful to me, I asked her about it, and we were not in court. We were at a social bar organization, and she did remember it, but she kind of blew it off a little bit, kind of like, yeah, those things happen. And it just, it, it just struck me as incredible 
that that could have happened and there was no consequence for it. But that was to her credit for not reacting, overreacting, reacting at all. But as we were preparing again for this session, Liz said to me, what about that story? And Liz, I got to tell you, until you said that, I did not put that story into a race category. I put it into a woman category. He only poked her because she's a woman. He would never have poked a man. It didn't occur to me the race also likely was part of it. And that brings me to my current struggle, which is the difference between being colorblind and anti-racist. I think before the last few months, I would have proudly said I'm colorblind, blithely thinking that that was a good thing. But the more I pay attention and think and, and learn and educate myself, that is not good enough. It's not good enough. It's, it's ignorant. And that's a pretend thing. It's completely made up. There is no such thing as that. It's not enough. And being an anti-racist is acknowledging all these things out there that we like to believe doesn't really exist or is over and reflecting on it like we're doing today and deciding what should be done. And that's the hard part. The hard part is deciding how we can play our little part in making it better. And the acknowledging of it, as small as that is, unbelievably is a big step speaking personally, because I think I would always live in my world um, so focused on women issues and the sexism in our profession and the sexism in our world, which is a lot. And to me, I guess it was enough in, in that it was what I could handle. <laughs> you can only handle so much. And it was what I could handle. And what I'm recognizing now is that Number one, I can handle more, and I should handle more. And, and that's what I want to do. So I think that perfectly segues into where I want to wrap this topic up. And, and by no means is this a one and done. This is such a big topic. I don't see how this can possibly be addressed in one episode. But I, when we were brainstorming on how to approach this, I wanted to make sure that we finished it off with just sort of the the strategies that we have come up with to address racism and to be, like you said, Amy, anti-racist on the micro level that we can affect. I understand there's little that I can do to change the medical community and how they may treat black patients. Except I'm gonna keep suing them. <laughs> Other than they keep suing. <laughs> we can always hope that'll make a difference. <laughs> but there are things that we can do more immediately. And I have been listening to a podcast that I really want to plug. It is by a psychologist here in St. Louis named Dr. Kira Banks. And Dr. Banks has a podcast called Raising Equity. And she addresses various elements of privilege, not just race. And the running theme through her episodes, though, are how can we as privileged people 
leverage our privilege to help those who don't have that privilege that, that we did not do anything to earn? How can we leverage our privilege to help those that have had systemic and institutional barriers placed against them? And so for an example, our firm puts on a lot of presentations and we host a number of events. One thing that we can do and and that other firms that host events and put on presentations is to ensure that we have diverse voices. Not just do we have women on the panel, but do we have people of color on the panel? And to that point, are we giving, and in this case, attorneys of color, the opportunity to speak on topics that they are experts on, not just speaking on what it's like to be an attorney of color. I I mean, I think it's really important to avoid that tokenism and make sure that you are giving people an opportunity to talk to an audience and to, honestly, a big part of this job is marketing, to market themselves as experts in their given field. So that's one thing that I I think is, is a huge first step that many firms and other companies can take to promote diversity and inclusion. Erica, what ideas do you have for our listeners? So I think when we are deciding how we spend our time professionally, an important thing to do is to seek out organizations and events that don't just mimic your own background. I mean, there's so many affinity groups with women's lawyers groups and things like that. And there are also professional lawyer groups based around your race or your gender or whatever identity you have. And to seek out and participate in groups that are not necessarily part of your identity. I always think about the consistent male members that we have on the Women's Lawyers Association in St. Louis who participate and are such great members to have at events. And it's really never occurred to me, I never think they don't belong or something like that. And I wanna remember in my own practice that I want to be someone who participates in events that other organizations put on and make sure that I'm participating and listening to their voices and their point of view and what their group has to offer to my own practice. Mary, I'm going to pass the question to you. One thing that I learned a couple years ago in law school is that, and and let me tell the listeners too, that I, I really love education and I love students. And in law school, a group of students decided to partake in a program where we would go to a school nearby the law school and take over, you know, a 45 minute history class or, or what have you and teach something about the law, kind of like a mini law and legal class for high school students. And I remember going to the classroom and one of the, you know, mini law school lessons that we presented on was about knowing your rights when confronted by a police officer. It was an all African-American classroom and listened to the students ask questions about their interactions with the police. And, and many of them, which again comes back to just systemic racism, one of the questions was, well, I know that that's how the interaction will go for you and pointing at me, but that's not how it will be for me. And that's what one of the young men in the classroom said. And talk about a moment of gleaning white privilege where I'm just standing there thinking, yeah, he's absolutely correct. It was a moment where I went back to my professor and we were kind of debriefing about the experience and 
the professor gave me advice and said, you know, don't have white students teach know your rights to black high school students. Just don't do it. And that's one way to help is, you know, if you're interested in education or the program, I can help set up the program. But maybe it's time for me to take a step down and actually have students of color uh, teach the seminar when it's an all black classroom. And so, you know, that was one great example that I saw. And, and I think about it in terms of still the same organizations that I'm interested in today and applying that same concept as I move forward. I think that's a great story. And it sort of trying to transition that from law school into your practice as an attorney, there is an incredible benefit to having a diverse staff, having diverse attorneys at your firm, because there are going to be situations where you're going to have clients who are not exactly like you. And so if you have people on your staff, just like having women just like having female attorneys is a huge benefit to the firm and to the service you can provide your client. Having a racially diverse staff of attorneys is, I think it's imperative and really it is a necessity in the year 2020 (laughs) and going forward. Elizabeth, I want to throw the question to you. Do you have any ideas of how we can leverage our privilege and try to make this a more equitable practice? Mine also kind of feeds off of what Erica was saying about expanding your own network, but mine was more on like a personal level. When all of this kind of started happening and there was a social reckoning and it happened to be during quarantine, so I was spending a lot of time at home. As any good millennial, I spent a decent amount of time on social media and I realized that my feeds, Twitter, Instagram, were very white. And one easy thing that I did was finding other accounts, people of color, black people that I could follow and kind of open up and educate myself and just diversify my feed more. And through that kind of diversifying my own social media and educating myself, I was able to not have to go seek out black people and people of color to educate me about how racism has affected them, but I was able to educate myself. And I think that that's something that's really important. These people are tired of telling white people how racism has affected them. It is our turn to step up and educate ourselves. And I think that's part of our own social responsibility as well. And that's why I've enjoyed this discussion so much is this is This is important for us to have amongst ourselves. It's not like our black colleagues haven't been talking about this. It's just a matter of are we listening and are we actively trying to come up with ways to fight against this? I have written down empathy versus fear. And what I think I mean by that is it's not, despite the way I've phrased it, It's not a binary choice. I think a lot of reason why there is systemic racism starts with fear of the unknown. We don't interact very well. We're very segregated, especially in St. Louis. And you fear what you don't know. Contrast that to what I think is the opposite of fear, which is empathy. Being able to embrace someone else, regardless of their color, color, background, gender, embrace someone else and understand how they're feeling. Different than sympathy, really, truly trying to understand someone. For me, 
again, it's a matter of recognizing that it is something that can be overcome. I don't think we need to be defeated by the current state of our society. I think we can talk about it like we are. It's got to be on your mind, and you have got to self-reflect. You have got to self-reflect, even every day. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why was that my reaction to that? And internalize it and make decisions. Again, I'm going to reference Dr. Banks's podcast, Raising Equity, where she's got this line that I wrote down of be reflective, not reactive. Meaning when someone tells you, hey, what you said offended me or what you said really bothered me or, or what you did bother me, don't take it as a personal attack or an opportunity for you to try to defend yourself. Really listen to them and take that and internalize that and try to figure out, okay, what I did upset them, how can I do better in the future? I don't think anyone is expecting their colleagues to be perfect or to immediately understand this really complicated topic off the bat, but it's going to be a matter of us talking about it, being honest about it, being reflective, not reactive, and just continually working to be better. And so this has been, I think, a great initial conversation to this. I've, I've enjoyed speaking to all of you about this, and I've just enjoyed this entire season. This, this has been a great first season. We are going to take a bit of a break, reflect on what we have done this first season, and come back, hopefully not too long from now, with some fresh new episodes and definitely continuing this conversation into season two. In the meantime, you can stream all of our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Podbean, or you can reach out to us at heelsinthecourtroom.law. Thank you again to all of our listeners, and we really hope to hear from you, and we hope to be back soon. Thank you. Bye. 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 Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Connect with Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, or Elizabeth at heelsinthecourtroom.law.